This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. The Urban Dictionary defines Casanova as, quote, a smooth-talking charmer who has mastered the art of finding, meeting, attracting, and seducing beautiful women into the bedroom. Once he accomplishes his goal, he leaves the woman out of fear of having a relationship, and proceeds to find his next conquest. The term comes from the man considered the most famous lover in history, Giacomo Casanova, a Venetian womanizer during the 18th century. The moniker was later given to a handsome, suave, and alluring man by the name of Paul John Knowles. He would pick women up, sleep with them, but instead of fleeing into the night to avoid a commitment, he killed the women giving a new, morbid meaning to the term conquest. He was the Casanova killer. One woman who fell under his spell, however, would get out alive. Her name was Sandy Fox. The year was 1975. The place was the Polaris, a rotating bar in Atlanta, Georgia. British reporter Sandy Fox went to dinner with Daryl Golden, a man she met at a Holiday Inn bar a few days earlier. She'd later describe him as a little odd, even scary. Despite that, at the moment, she found it hard to say goodbye. 
he was charming, intelligent, tall, and with his long, sandy red hair, she thought he looked kind of like Robert Redford or Ryan O'Neill. He asked her if she would write a book about him because he didn't have much time to live. He told her he was going to be killed soon because of something he did in the past before he met her. He went on to explain that some tapes he left with his lawyer would come out after he died and would all make headlines. She thought he was being funny. She liked him, so she went on a road trip with him. A week later, Sandy Fox would learn that Daryl Golden wasn't this man's real name. The man she was traveling with was actually Paul John Knowles, and Knowles was right. In just over a month, he was dead. She did eventually write a book about him, in which she recounted this conversation. Unbeknownst to her at the time, she was traveling with a serial killer, one who would capture the public's attention. A few weeks prior to his death, Knowles was taken to Milledgeville, Georgia, to be arraigned for some of his murders, and huge crowds lined the street, hoping for a glimpse of him. A week later, he died in police custody, shot while trying to escape from the back of a squad car. When Whiteley and Tidwell Funeral Home was preparing his corpse for the burial, the mortician received a phone call from a teenage girl asking if she could see Noel's body. Her reason? She'd never seen a mass murderer. People can become obsessed with serial killers. The draw is fear and the control of it. We actually have a slight spike in adrenaline when we see something bad, like a car accident on the side of the road. That adrenaline response makes us enjoy, in a sense, learning about serial killers, even seeing them. It gives us a rush, even if it's a small one, because it's allowing us to confront something we fear, in this case, violent, random death from within a controlled environment. And Knowles would have inspired a lot of fear. From July to November 1974, he drove back and forth across the country for months, violently taking the lives of men, women, children, and the elderly. He exhibited no real pattern and killed in a variety of styles confounding police. It's still not clear how many people Knowles killed. 18 victims have been proven. Knowles claims he murdered almost double that. Fox came to wonder why Knowles didn't kill her. So would Barbara Tucker, a radio copywriter who Knowles held hostage for 36 hours and, in a rare show of mercy, left alive in a Florida motel. Why did he spare them? The answer might be connected to why he killed the rest. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and welcome to Serial Killers a podcast diving into the minds and motives of some of the most infamous and notorious serial killers. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa will be answering questions I have about the mental makeup of a serial killer, what makes them tick, what molded them, and what their thought process is like. And she will provide other valuable insight. It's important to note that she's not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but like me, she is fascinated by the psychology of serial killers and has done a lot of research for the show. This week and next week, Vanessa and I are looking at Paul John Knowles, the Casanova killer, and the crime spree that traversed 37 states, leaving as many as 35 dead. 
This week, we'll examine Noel's life from his youth in and out of reform school to his multiple stints in Florida prisons. And then we'll dive into his murder spree and his spectacular death in search of clues as to why he committed so many heinous homicides and why he spared some of his victims. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them all in your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Monday. Visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join the conversation. Vanessa, the press called Knowles the Casanova Killer because of his easy charm and handsome face. Do we know how Knowles viewed himself? A seagull. A seagull? He compared himself to a seagull, yes. And not any seagull, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. The novel? I think I still have my high school copy somewhere. (laughs) Not surprising. Written by Richard Bach in 1970, it topped the New York Times bestseller list for 38 weeks. And then in 1972 and 1973, it was the best-selling novel in the United States. And it's about a seagull. A seagull who doesn't fit in. He's not interested in a regular seagull life. He just wants to fly. So it's aspirational. That's probably the only thing Knowles took from this book, because Jonathan Livingston Seagull is about living a positive life. It contains lessons on love, respect, forgiveness, and helping others. Hmm, not quite the type of operational philosophy associated with most serial killers. What about Jonathan Livingston Seagull did he identify with that? Well, let's go all the way back to 1953, Jacksonville. Young Paul first crossed the police when he was seven years old. Suck it! He stole a bike and rode right into trouble with the law. Noel's parents, Thomas and Bonnie, had their hands full with young Paul. He refused to do homework. What we see here is that from the beginning, he had a strong disdain for authority. Do we find that often in serial killers? Sometimes. As you know, many serial killers seek control. For murderers, the act of killing gives them an opportunity to gain control by having so much power over someone else's life. Some killers seek out authority roles, as a security guard, for example. Well, why then was Knowles so different from such a young age? Maybe two things. First, even though he didn't do his homework, Knowles was still very intelligent. Later in life, he scored high on an intelligence test in prison, unusually high for an inmate. He also read a good deal, not just Jonathan Livingston Seagull. So he didn't do his homework or care for authority figures because he didn't feel like he needed them? Right. And Knowles really liked attention from his peers, and rebelling against authority gave him that attention he sought. So he'd misbehave, often talking back to adults and stealing. He'd get in trouble, and then would go back to his friends, who laughed and encouraged his continued misbehavior. It was a cycle that would continue through adulthood. As a minor, Knowles was sent away to the Florida School for Boys six times on a variety of charges, which included breaking and entering and grand larceny. The Florida School for Boys was a reform school and juvenile detention center in Mariana, Florida. Now, hold on a second. Now, Florida is a big, big state. A handful of Knowles' murders happened there. Later on, the police would chase him across the length of the state. So, as a frame of reference, how far is Mariana from Orlando? It's a four and a half hour drive near the Georgia border. Okay, thank you. Oh, please continue. (laughs) The Florida School for Boys probably did significant damage to Knowles emotionally and psychologically as a child. 
For all of its 111-year history, there were allegations of the staff abusing, torturing, and even murdering students. After the school's closure in 2011, excavations uncovered the remains of over 50 students, and some believe there were even more. Mm. Unfortunately, this wasn't uncommon at reform schools, and it's why very few still exist. Reform schools were originally developed with the idea that troubled youths needed to be separated from older, more dangerous criminals. The goal was to create an environment solely for juvenile delinquents focused on rehabilitation rather than discipline. In doing so, early advocates for reform schools hoped to lessen recidivism. That sounds a lot like a modern-day juvenile detention center. Well, they were similar, though they housed more delinquents than modern detention centers do. Today, authorities aspire to keep lesser offenders at home and only send minors to detention centers if they pose a threat to the public. Eventually, the same issues present in normal prisons when child and adult inmates were intermixed also arose in reform schools. Older students took on the role of the adult inmates, bullying and abusing their younger counterparts, and the guards were worse. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to serial killers. In 1968, just a few years after Knoll's final stay at the Florida School for Boys, the governor of Florida made an official visit. At the time, the school had over 500 students living in terrible conditions. Corporal punishment was banned in the aftermath of his tour, but it didn't stop. And that definitely is a contributing factor in the formation of a serial killer. While early childhood abuse does not always lead to psychopathic tendencies in adults, 42% of convicted serial killers were physically abused as children. So I suppose we could say Knowles was a product of the system. Mm, at least in part. But Knowles was described as having a temper even when he was young. His parents and teachers often faced an intense, awful rage if they tried to reprimand him. And he also exhibited violence against female classmates during this time. One of his friend's sisters said Knowles liked attention and would grow violent if he didn't get it. Once Knowles punched a girl in the face for rejecting his advances. Some Casanova. He also told a friend that one day he would be a, quote, big famous bad guy. Which is consistent with something else we know about Knowles. He idolized outlaws. Knowles loved books about famous criminals like John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and Bonnie and Clyde. What, what line of work you in when you're not stealing cars? <laughs> Well, I tell you, uh, I'm looking for suitable employment right now. Oh, yes. Well, what did you do before? I was, uh, I was in state prison. State prison? Uh-huh. Well, I guess, uh, some little old lady wasn't so nice. It was armed robbery. Oh, my. The things that turn up in the street these days. They all shared at least three common bonds. These criminals all traveled across the country committing crimes and murders. They all lost their lives in violent shootouts with the police. And all of them achieved a level of fame on par with actors and professional athletes. 
except they didn't have to put in the work an actor or professional athlete would. If it was attention Knowles sought, a life of crime was an easy path to infamy. That was not a part of Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I didn't think so. But now we're seeing a pattern. Knowles really, really liked being the center of attention. And that is extremely common among several different types of murderers. Mark David Chapman, who assassinated John Lennon, thought killing the musician would make him famous. Mass murderers have frequently expressed a desire for the notoriety that comes from media coverage of mass shootings. And perhaps the most famous serial killer of the 20th century, Charles Manson, was a failed musician who found other means to superstardom. Were you happy when you found out you weren't going to go to the gas chamber, Charles? Uh, I knew I wasn't going to go to the gas chamber because I hadn't done anything wrong. That's Charles Manson talking to Tom Snyder on the NBC late night program, The Tomorrow Show, in 1981. His appearance garnered enormous ratings. Hey, Vanessa. Yeah? If a murderer commits murder because he or she wants attention from other people or the media, and this podcast is media talking about murderers, are we part of the problem? Mm, there's a constant debate in how to cover murders, as well as suicides, so as not to inspire others. This includes avoiding romanticized language when covering the deaths, not publishing killers' manifestos, websites, or videos, and, in some cases, not even releasing the killers' names or photographs. Hmm, but all that still happens. Right, and sometimes it is necessary. For example, if a suspect is at large and a danger to others, authorities will ask media outlets to help circulate his his or her name and image. For our part, we're not here to honor or celebrate Paul John Knowles or anyone like him. Quite the opposite. We hope that in the retelling of these events, that our listeners learn the commonalities, dangers, and warning signs associated with serial killers. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you'd never have a reason to employ that knowledge, but... But someday we might. We literally never know. Now, how does a child seeking attention fit into the profile of a serial killer? Well, on its own, it doesn't. And if a child is obsessed with infamous outlaws and boasts that he will be a well-known bad guy one day, it could be your run-of-the-mill cops and robbers kid stuff. However, we also need to take into account Noel's explosive fits of rage. And then a more serious pattern emerged when there was an escalation in his behavior. Which is what happened with Noel's in March of 1965. Noel's was 19 when he added a new crime to his repertoire, kidnapping. It was a night that started like others for Knowles. He stole a car. Except this time, when the officer pulled him over, Knowles managed to grab the officer's gun and took him hostage. Knowles released the officer two hours later without incident. This wouldn't be the first time he disarmed and kidnapped a police officer. While police obviously train to prevent situations like that, sometimes suspects get the better of them. Through brains or brawn? Maybe both. In one instance, Knowles had a sawed-off shotgun that he pulled on the officer while the officer approached the car. In another, Knowles picked the lock on his handcuffs and tried to grab the holstered firearm of the unsuspecting sheriff who was transporting him. There's not much detail about the 1965 kidnapping, except that Knowles was able to get to the officer's sidearm before the officer could stop him. Why would he suddenly do something so much worse than petty theft? He'd committed it regularly throughout his entire life. What would inspire the drastic change? Well, remember, Knowles had a disdain for authority and idolized outlaws. John Dillinger didn't become public enemy number one by playing nice with police. 
Also, for some criminals, institutionalization is like going to school for crime. The more time they spend in lockup, the worse their subsequent offenses are. So if Florida School for Boys earned him the equivalent of, say, a high school-level diploma in petty crime, then kidnapping a police officer allowed him to graduate into a life of more serious offenses. Mm. Considered his entrance exam to Rayford Prison. Located two and a half hours north of Orlando, Rayford, now known as Union Correctional Institution, has held other serial killers, like Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos. Leonard Skinner wrote a song about it, The Four Walls of Rayford. Well, them four walls of Rayford Closing in on me Doing three to five hard labor Four armed robbery I had two years behind me But I could not wait the time Every time I thought about it Well, I died some more inside from 1965 until his death, Knowles would spend around six months of every year in jail. This too is common for some criminals. Recidivism rates in the American justice system are extremely high. Within just three years of their release, roughly 68% of prisoners are arrested again. Within five years, that number grows to over three quarters of released prisoners. However, when it comes to property offenders, meaning breaking and entering or larceny, they exhibit the highest recidivism rate of any subset. More than 80% of those prisoners return to jail. What are the causes of this? Well, a handful of factors. For example, if someone turned to crime because they couldn't or wouldn't get a job to make money and therefore afford food and shelter, and they return to the same situation they were in before they were sent to prison, it might be very easy for them to also revert to a life of crime. In Noel's case, it seems to have had something to do with his social circle. Yeah, each time he was released, he reunited with the same group of friends and drinking buddies. Before long, he'd get locked up again. Mm -hmm. It was a cycle that was similar to what he did as a kid, when he would misbehave with authority figures, get attention from his friends, and then misbehave again to get more attention. During this period of his life, a few romances would have significant impact on Noel's life. Knowles earned his nickname the Casanova Killer in the press because he used his good looks and charm to convince women he wasn't a danger. What was less reported was that this is also true of his male victims. He met two of them in gay bars. It's not known if Knowles identified as homosexual or bisexual. Knowles' biographer, Jack Smith, alleges he had several relationships with men while at Rayford. Smith also claims this is why Knowles sometimes struggled with impotence with his female victims. Which I suppose suggests that Knowles was actually gay, but when you look at what we know of his romantic history, it's difficult to make any definitive assumptions about how he identified sexually or where he fell on the Kinsey scale. What we can say for sure is that, in many regards, gender was not a disqualifying factor for Knowles. While in jail, he maintained relationships with two women. The first was Jackie Knight. Knowles almost embarked on an entirely different path with Knight, one that would have given him a family with three children and would have saved 18 lives. During one of his brief times out of prison, Knowles met Jackie Knight in a bar and made friends with her and her husband. Knowles liked their three children and spent a lot of time with the family, even taking the children to local fairs and winning prizes for them. But before long, Knowles violated his parole and went back to jail. While he was incarcerated, Jackie Knight visited and wrote letters. Then she got divorced. Knight and Knowles grew closer. Eventually, Knowles sent Knight a special request in writing. 
he asked her to marry him. Hmm, maybe he meant it. Or maybe this, again, was a way to be the center of someone's attention. By marrying Jackie, he would be the head of a family. He already had a good relationship with her and the kids. He wouldn't have to steal a car or kidnap a cop to impress them. He'd just have to come home every night. Knowles was released on May 10, 1970, and Jackie Knight and Paul Knowles got married. He sought a real job. Which is not always easy for ex-cons. Many employers won't hire felons. Before long, Knowles was back hanging out with his old buddies. The ones who tended to have a negative impact on his behavior. Mm -hmm. And as he fell back into old habits, things fell apart with Jackie. She moved to Macon, Georgia. Roughly five hours from Orlando, but just under two hours from Atlanta. Well, thank you, Vanessa. And in Macon, Georgia, she had their marriage annulled. Though, as we'll see in the next episode, they left off on decent terms, and Knowles would visit the Knight family in Macon repeatedly over the next few years. In 1972, Knowles committed yet another kind of crime that would become a defining factor of his later spree. Escape. But not like a Houdini escape. But not yet, at least. Before long, he would prove he knew how to pick a lock, and twice he would use that skill to escape custody. But in 1972, a year after being picked up for burglary, Knowles was given furlough privileges. For our listeners who don't know, furlough programs in prison systems allow eligible prisoners to be released for short periods, like over a weekend, so that they can look for work or slowly re-enter their community. These programs have at times proven to be successful, but prisoners do take advantage of them, as was the case with Knowles. He simply didn't return one day. He was on the lam for three weeks before police finally found him. He did not go down easy. Knowles fought with police, attempting to recapture him, and earned an additional three years on his sentence. And he did what any other inmate would do. He fell in love. Again? He wasn't called the Casanova killer for nothing. But he hadn't even started killing yet. According to Paul John Knowles, at least, it was this next woman who came into his life who, you could say, inspired him to kill. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to the story. So how does a man locked away for three years, who is definitely not going to be granted furlough privileges again, even meet a woman to fall in love with? American Astrology Magazine. Knowles liked his horoscopes. A good outlook would leave him feeling upbeat, happy. A negative one would sour his mood. So how much value can you put on a horoscope? Well, they are only as accurate or inaccurate as you want them to be. Meaning? What tends to happen with horoscopes is that we focus on what confirms the things we already believe about ourselves. So if your horoscope says you're going to have a good day... You'll look at all the good things you already have going for you and apply them to your horoscope. Hmm. It'll be a form of positive reinforcement about what already makes you feel positive. And if your horoscope warns of a crummy day... You're only going to look at the crummy things about your life (laughs) and apply that to your horoscope instead. So, negative reinforcement for what already makes you feel negative. Exactly. Around this time, Knowles described himself as, quote, angry and aimless. He was in and out of jail and had just been divorced. If he was reading his horoscopes to look for some kind of guidance in his life, then it makes sense his moods would be so changeable depending on what the horoscope predicted. Angela Kovic's mother was a well-known psychic, and Knowles read about Angela in American Astrology. So he wrote her a letter. And she liked his handwriting and wrote him back. A long-distance romance grew. His criminal past didn't deter Kovic. Her first husband had one as well. In fact, she called her new beau Mad Dog Knowles. He called her 
my Yiddisher angel. There is some debate over how genuine his feelings were for her. Maybe Knowles really loved Kovic, or maybe he found her an easy mark, one that would help him get out of prison once and for all. Well, if that's true, he worked really hard for it. After a long correspondence, Angela came to visit him in prison. He immediately proposed marriage. But first he'd have to get out of jail. Mm, that would not be easy. He was a repeat offender with a history of trying to escape. And he had been in the same exact position before. His past actions were not a good indicator that he would honor the terms of a parole. One thing that would be different, he wasn't going back to Jacksonville. Instead, he was going to move to San Francisco to be with Angela. Meaning he would not go back to that circle of friends who had been a bad influence on him for so long. He earned a high school diploma and started taking college courses. And he thought he could get a job as a sign painter. Like he said before, he had been angry and aimless. Now he wanted to change his life, for real this time, and abandon his old ways. He was committed to the pursuit of self-perfection. He really did identify with Jonathan Livingston Siegel, the outcast who became a better version of himself. Hmm, for now. Kovic found Knowles a lawyer in Miami, Sheldon Yavitz. He's one of the final players we need to meet, because as we'll learn in our next episode, Yavitz would eventually be in possession of a significant piece of evidence that would incriminate Knowles and potentially immortalize him. So what do we know about Yavitz? Well, Sheldon Yavitz had several questionable clients. Drugs, petty theft, you know, that sort of ilk. He usually got them off on a technicality. Knowles would prove to be an entirely different kind of client for him to handle. His own attorney and mentor was Alice Rubin, a Florida lawyer who also had a colorful history of unusual cases. The jurors did their job as they saw it, but I think that they could not help but be influenced by the fact that during the trial, the name Spider-Man was, quote, inadvertently, unquote, uttered by one of the state's witnesses, one of the lead detectives in the case. That is actual audio of Ellis Rubin discussing the conviction of a client nicknamed Spider-Man, who had robbed a number of luxury high-rise apartments. He was also involved in cases with celebrities like Sylvester Stallone, Watergate burglar Frank Sturgis, and serial killer Bobby Joe Long. As we'll hear next week, Reuben would have to defend both Paul John Knowles and Sheldon Yavitz in Georgia. That's still a few months away, though. You're right. Yavitz got the job done, and on May 14, 1974, Knowles walked out of prison early. Before Knowles arrived in San Francisco, Kovic visited a psychic who warned her that a dangerous man was coming into her life. After he'd been in San Francisco for a week, Kovic informed Knowles that she wasn't going to go through with the wedding. Instead, she was getting back together with her ex-husband. At the point that Knowles thought he'd finally gotten off the ground and found peace and a way to improve his life and leave the troubles of his youth behind, at the point he was flying the highest he'd ever flown, he got knocked back down. And so, Knowles murdered three people the same night she dumped him. Whoa, that escalated quickly. Mm -hmm. Or so he claimed... While authorities eventually confirmed that Knowles did commit 18 murders, he took credit for 35, including three in San Francisco the evening Angela Kovic dumped him. But there's no evidence whatsoever of this actually happening. This inflation of his victim count was of course a way to bolster his fame from the killings. As far as anyone living is aware, Knowles' first murder came two months later, July 26, 1974, 
Following his rejection, Knowles returned to Jacksonville. About two and a half hours from Orlando, that night he went on a bender. He got in a fight, stabbed a bouncer, and wound up in jail. He picked the lock of his cell and escaped. His second successful escape from police, if you count the early time when he kidnapped the officer. Looking for money in a car, Knowles broke into the home of a 65-year-old schoolteacher, Alice Curtis. He probably cut the screen of a window and broke it, waking her. He bound and gagged Curtis. Nobody is sure the exact order of what happened next and if Knowles was aware of it. Well, the gag loosened Curtis's dentures and she choked on them. If Knowles was still with her when it happened and knew, he failed to help her. Instead, he stood and watched as she choked to death. So did he know? Maybe. Say he didn't and he left the house before she died. Eventually, he may have seen news coverage on Curtis's death. He collected news clippings of his later murders, which he probably did to bolster his own sense of fame. So he may even have sought information about her. He also would have known, as someone who already had a record that included kidnapping a police officer and stabbing a bouncer, he didn't stand a chance in the courts. No, even if it was an accident, he caused it. He'd probably be charged with murder or, at the very best, manslaughter. This event marks a drastic shift in Knowles from small-time crook to big-time murderer. Mm -hmm. He knew he was going to jail, or worse, the electric chair, which was one of the few things that actually scared Knowles. And so he had a choice. Let himself be arrested and die forgotten in prison, or he could become one of those famous outlaws he always wanted to be when he grew up. Knowles took off in Alice Curtis's 1971 yellow Dodge Demon, a sporty old muscle car with a small demon decal on the rear. Five days later, he'd meet his next two victims, again in Jacksonville, Florida. Over the next few months, Paul John Knowles would kill as far west as Nevada and as far north as Connecticut. He'd finally get exactly what he always wanted. He'd be a big, famous bad guy. In the next installment of Serial Killers, the Casanova Killers' four-month killing spree across the United States that confused police and captivated the public. We'll dig deep into the 18 known victims of Paul John Knowles, as well as his four known survivors, to try to understand his motivations behind the different MOs he exhibited, as well as try to figure out why he spared some of his victims. Thank you for listening to Serial Killers. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to Serial Killers on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Serial Killers comes out every Monday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Zach Cannon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. The amazing voice actor is Manu Narayan. 